the following is from a rare book entitled A Treatise Upon Growth and Grace by Samuel Isles Pierce. The Reverend Samuel Isles Pierce was born in Devonshire, England on June 23, 1746. He died in Surrey, England on May 10th of 1829. He was an English preacher, theologian, and Calvinist. He was aligned with the Baptist Church. He wrote more than 50 books and many sermons. He was inspired to become a preacher after reading Anthony Hornick's Crucified Jesus and soon began reading Augustine, Philip Doddridge's Rise and Progress of Religion and the Soul, and sermons by James Hervey and George Whitfield. He gained experience in London in 1772 to 1775, influenced by William Romaine. He was particularly opposed to the Methodist teachings of John Wesley and encountered hostility from the Methodists throughout his career. This chapter is called On the State in Which the Believer is In and What His Experience and Enjoyment Are. It requires much divine light and unction from the Spirit of God to treat of His divine and sacred energy, influence, and operations within and upon the souls of the regenerate. In all attempts on a subject of such vast and eternal importance, great attention ought to be given to what is revealed concerning His work in the written word. For though the Holy Ghost works like himself as an almighty agent, yet he works always agreeable to the written word. To talk of his workings and operations without the word is wholly enthusiastic. And to talk of the word without his own life-giving energy accompanying it to our hearts is to neglect him who only can make it unto us spirit and life. We can never fully conceive the infinite delight which the Father has in his Son as mediator and in his finished work. The everlasting acceptance which Christ's person, righteousness, and sacrifice have found with Jehovah the Father exceeds our utmost conception in consequence of which Jesus appears on his mediatorial throne as a lamb newly slain with his heart burning with love to his redeemed. He remembers them with everlasting kindness. He looks on them with inexpressible complacency, rejoicing in them and over them to do them good. As enthroned in glory, made most blessed forever, being rendered exceeding glad with the light of his Father's countenance and invested with all power in heaven and earth, he sends down his Holy Spirit to bring home his banished ones, whose work and office in the souls of the regenerate are holy of grace, the fruit and effect of the everlasting covenant. The Holy Ghost works within and upon them as the travel of Christ's soul. He views them as the objects of his Father's everlasting love, and out of his own free and sovereign love towards them, he works most freely and effectually within them. Like as the Father gave the greatest evidence of his everlasting love to the elect by the gift of his Son, to live and to die for them, when they were sinners, enemies, and ungodly. As Paul saith, God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as Christ manifested his love, when we were in our sins and in our blood, for he loved us and gave himself for us, and was made sin and a curse for us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, so the Holy Spirit, whose love is fixed on the persons of his people, and who loves them as the elect of God and the members of Christ's mystic body with the same everlasting love, with which the Father and the Son do, is also on his part pleased to give such a demonstration of it, when they were dead in trespasses and sins, as proves it to be holy of grace. His whole work within them and on them is but the fruit and effect of his love. God's election is an election of persons. Christ died for persons. The Holy Ghost works on persons, and his work is eternal and will last forever. 
His work, when truly, scripturally, and properly explained, is strictly, purely gospel. It consists in bringing the elect into the state of knowing the Lord and furnishing them by his new creation within them with those spiritual and supernatural faculties which capacitate them for the enjoyment of the Father's love and for communion with Christ and all the benefits and blessings of his salvation and in leading them off entirely from every hope but in the Lord alone, the foundation of which is laid in Jesus, of whom the believer says he is the rock, his work is perfect. The work of the Holy Ghost and the souls of the regenerate is great and glorious, worthy of himself. It is perfect and truly divine. Moving to the next chapter, of the peculiar temptations and assaults of Satan against the regenerate and believing child of God, whose frames and feelings are described and stated agreeably to what is recorded of them in the written word. The regenerate and believing child of God is brought into that state which is truly great and blessed. Looking at what the Lord has done for him and other regenerate ones, he may well break forth with rapture and say, Who is like unto the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even the princes of his people. In a state of grace to which he is admitted, all the persons in the Godhead are pleased to hold communion with him. The sacred three entertain him with their love give him sweet enjoyment thereof, cause their goodness and glory to pass before him, and in divine fellowship with the Father, in his everlasting love with the Son and his salvation, and with the Holy Ghost and his gracious gifts and consolations, he receives and enjoys some of the sweetest expressions of everlasting love, which can be communicated on this side of heaven, and which can never be exceeded till time is swallowed up in eternity, and earth exchanged for heaven. It is the Lord's revealed will that his beloved and called one should honor him chiefly in a way of believing his testimony, receiving his record concerning his son, and setting their seal to his immutable and infallible truth. Therefore he permits them, in the course of their walking with him, as a reconciled God and Father, to be opposed, assaulted, and resisted by Satan, to the intent that they may have full experience and learn practically that salvation is wholly out of themselves that it resides wholly in the person, that it is contained in the finished work of Christ, that it is treasured up with all its blessings and the fullness of him who fills all in all, and that they are to receive the whole of it and be happy in the enjoyment of it entirely in believing on Jesus to the saving of the soul. When this love has been manifested to a poor sinner, it draws out the implacable malice and hatred of the devil. It is a sufficient motive with him to hate with a peculiar hatred those whom the Lord loves. When a sinner is turned from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, all hell is alarmed. Satan immediately begins to rage, and though for a season he may be restrained from making a formal attack and entering into a personal and formal combat with a newborn person, yet he only forbears because under restraint or that he may work the more craftily and successfully against him. It pleases the Lord for a season to screen his child, newly brought into his family from Satan's temptations and assaults. To the end he may the better be prepared for them when he shall be exercised with them. And to believers first entrance into the state of grace and on the enjoyments of those blessings which belong to the called of God in Christ Jesus, he knows but little of that body of sin and death which he is the subject of. It is with him when newly converted and turned to the Lord, as though all sin were entirely dead in him, he feels no stirrings of corruptions. 
God is his exceeding joy. He draws near to him, approaches the throne of grace with great frequency and delight, prays with great freedom and affection, enjoys much sensible comfort, reads the word, and finds his heart sweetly melted and his affection sensibly stirred within him, especially when Christ and his sufferings are the subjects contained in those portions of it before him. The promises make a divine impression on his mind. The ordinances are greatly prized by him, and he enjoys much sweetness in them. His affections are lively, his heart is warm, his frames are very comfortable. His conversation is in heaven. His language is, Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. And thus, like as when the Lord brought his people out of Egypt, he led them not through the land of the Philistines, although that was near that they may not be discouraged. So it pleases him in his spiritual dealings with a new convert to be very gracious to him and keeping out of sight those trials and sorrows which will more or less befall him in his walk heavenward. He sees no danger. He fears no evil. The Lord goes before him as his guide. The God of Israel is his re-reward. And like as the Israelites, when they had passed safely through the Red Sea, looked and saw their enemies dead on the shore, believed the Lord and sang his praise, so does the believer in Christ. He says, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will exalt him. This confounds Satan and provokes him to withstand him for the appropriating language. My God he hates with the most implacable hatred. For a season he is forced to forbear but he only waits for what he considers a suitable occasion to make an assault on the converted person, and in like manner, as when God bore his testimony to the divine sonship of Christ, and the Holy Ghost sealed that testimony by his inward witness to the Messiah's mind concerning it, he was soon questioned by Satan, who put an if upon it, if thou be the Son of God, so the same evil one on the testimony of the Spirit's being received into the heart. Thou art a son of God and an heir of glory. The devil aims to call this in question. It is one of his peculiar and almost universal temptations with which he more or less assaults the holy brethren. And there are seasons in the believer's experience which suit Satan to make such a temptation very successful. The believer, after a while, is permitted by the Lord to feel what he is in himself. He sees and feels that in his fallen nature dwells nothing that is good. This gives great occasion of grief, damps the believer's holy joy in the Lord, lessens those lively affections which a child of God had experienced, and thus a way is open for Satan for new temptations which peculiarly consist in fighting against a believer's faith and joy in God. At first the believer, being in a new world, experienced such a powerful change in his soul, and finding nothing but light and joy in the Lord is very greatly affected. When those sensible affections to divine and heavenly enjoyments abate, some of which are not so much supernatural as natural, he begins to feel a strange alteration in his mind at which Satan begins to suit his temptations accordingly. He puts on the appearance of an angel of light, compliments him upon what he has enjoyed, and suggests that it looks as though he had been more than highly favored of the Lord, seeing his affections have been highly raised after heavenly things, his zeal very great, his devotion very singular, his joy superabundant, his sins mightily subdued, and his mind quite deadened to the world. 
But at the same time he darts this thought into the mind, that allowing all this to be strictly true, yet the case is very greatly altered, that old corruptions are still inherent, that it is a matter of question if they were truly mortified, that if God loved, surely his love being unchangeable, the enjoyment of it would be so also, and in short, that things are not what they were. Then together with this, he insinuates it is a possible case that the soul may have been deceived, that its apprehensive sense of pardoning mercy may have been notional, its views of Christ altogether delusion, and its joys all fanciful, which so secretly operates on the mind and influences the heart and affections as to add great force to the energy of his temptations. For in all this, Satan's hand is not seen. The converted person reasons on it, concludes it is his case, looks into himself and searches to find some good thing there towards the Lord God of Israel, but in his old nature he finds no change. Now Satan breathes with his hellish breath on the inward corruption of the mind, by which means it is excited, quickened, and drawn forth. He draws the eye of the mind to look on it, then he pretends to preach the exceeding sinfulness of it. This alarms a believer who looks so much at it as to be overcome by it, which makes way for the devil to accuse. He knows that the conscience being defiled with guilt will breed ten thousand jealousies in the heart. Now he throws off his appearance of an angel of light and proceeds boldly to charge home actual sin on the converted person. Ask what he thinks of himself and state now if this is the fruit of his pretended conversion. If he can now be bold to call God his father, which being accompanied with much hellish influence, puzzle and perplex a believer, and cause him to doubt his adoption into the heavenly family. Thus the devil having made a breach in the spirit goes on working from time to time secretly and imperceptibly upon the body of sin in every faculty, sense, and affection of it, with a design to draw the believer into the actual commission of evil. He is very attentive to the believer, marks him well, studies him accurately, makes conclusions concerning him, tries experiments on him, discharges his whole artillery against him, and is in no part of his skill and practice more successful than by his sly legal insinuations. From the moment he can perceive any souls to be truly translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son, he attends very particularly to what their views of gospel grace are, with their professions, experience, and enjoyments of the same. He feels the pulse of their minds to find out particularly what their besetting sins and weaknesses are. And having discovered this, which is of vast importance to him, because he hereby knows the better how to suit his temptations, he never fails to improve it. Successful or not successful, it is all one with him, as it respects his improvement on it. That variety of experience which the Lord's people have of the wiles and malice of this, their sworn and constant adversary, may be ascribed and attributed to this personal application of his for finding out the peculiar constitution, inclination, and besetting sin of every individual believer, together with his various modes of temptations and assaults upon them. To sum up the peculiar temptations and assaults of the regenerate and believing child of God, Satan tempts him to doubt concerning his regeneration, telling him plainly by his secret workings on the mind that it is very difficult for him to prove that he is born of God. As it is expressly said, he that is born of God cannot commit sin. 
whereas he has sinned since he professed to be born again, he adds also that all allow, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, which with all his profession he cannot find himself to be, seeing he has the same old heart and spirit, the same lusts and corruptions within him as ever. And it respects his profession of being a justified and pardoned person. Satan suggests this is very doubtful, because the believer himself has at times his inward doubts concerning it. This, says Satan, thou knowest, that after the sweet seasons of refreshment, as you call them, you have lost a relish and sense of the same. Yea, to my knowledge, in your shame, you have fallen by your besetting sin. Satan assaults the soul in the very use of God's ordinance. If the soul enjoy liberty in prayer, freedom in spirit, and exercise the mind without bondage and distress, then he will try to prevail on it to be well pleased with its own performances. If much comfort and joy be bestowed, he will try to get the child of God to live on them and rest in them. If there be no freedom in prayer, then he will make use of this circumstance by way of distress. When God is pleased on some peculiar seasons of grace to shine upon a regenerate and enlighten a mind with some high, supernatural, and exalted views of his love, the person of Christ, his glories, work, salvation, and grace, fullness and perfection, so that the believer enjoys more than ordinary communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, immediately Satan will make an attack upon the child of God. He will either aim to puff him up thereby and fill him with spiritual pride, or he will by his secret wiles stir up corruption within him and cast him in some of his fiery darts to inflame and scorch the mind, and then ask the believer what he thinks of himself now, what he is more than others, what sort of communion with God he can have when his corruptions are as easily stirred and drawn forth as ever. Satan has an art and most frequently exercises it towards a person born of God, and it is this, namely, to turn the very scriptures themselves against a believer by putting his own glosses and comments on them, and by his subtle and false applications of them to the mind, and by this he prevails most with the regenerate, because it is not so easy to detect him when he works like an angel of light as when he falls upon his hellish projects and assaults like a roaring lion. When we review his titles and what is related of his power, rage, and wrath in the written word, and how is indefatigably, night and day, distressing the uttermost, the child of God, it leads us to consider that we are in constant danger from him. He is called the old serpent, the god of this world, Satan, the devil, the deceiver, which deceiveth the whole world, yea, the whole world, i.e., the world of persons out of Christ, who are said to be in the arms of the wicked one. He is filled with great rage against the saints. All the persecutions which have been raised against him are a proof of it. The immutable enmity between his seed and the seed of the woman is the continual evidence of it. He is a prince of the power of the air and has whole legions of fallen spirits at his command and under his control. He is that spirit which worketh in the children of disobedience. There is not a sin they commit, but his hand is in it. Peter, though an apostle of Jesus Christ, was so fiercely assaulted by this common adversary 
who wanted to swallow him up, that he gives us a solemn warning to be on the watch and guard against him, saying, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Satan's temptations are the saints' afflictions. Yet we are never tempted, but sin is quickened, even though we may preserve from falling by it. Sometimes Satan engages the soul in a particular combat. He attacks it on a particular season. In a short time he departs and seems to leave the soul without any further assault on it. When after a long cessation and the believer has been kept going on with a high hand toward the city of habitation, all in a sudden he returns, renews his assaults, interrupts the believer's communion with God, and then preaches to him in this legal manner, saying, You cannot be the Lord's. Do not be presumptuous. Have you never heard that despair has slain its thousands, and presumption its ten thousands? Know you not that it is written without holiness, no man shall see the Lord? Sure, says this arch deceiver, you cannot look into your heart and say you are holy. And such insinuations as these consist of very depths of Satan's wiles and stratagems, as it respects his assaults on a child of God, which suggestions operate on the believer's mind to his very great distress. He forgets the one everlasting foundation, neglects the exercise of his faith on the perpetual virtue and efficacy of Christ's most precious bloodshedding, is led off from the simplicity which is in Christ Jesus, has his eye off of Christ, looks into himself for that which can only be found in Jesus, legalizes the word of the gospel, makes use of it against himself, and thus Satan gains his end by keeping him at a distance from Christ. By this the believer's mind is affected, shut up and contracted in consequence of harboring some secret jealousies concerning the love of Christ. The child of God in such a case says, Oh, what a depth of corruption! What a fountain of impurity is within me! I once thought myself among the number of the renewed and called people of God, looked on myself as sanctified by faith which is in Christ Jesus. But alas, such a sight and sense of my inward sinfulness and corruption have been discovered to me in the hour of temptation, that I don't know what to say or think of myself and state. I am vile in my own eyes, so that I cannot but most heartily loathe and abhor myself. And if I be thus exceedingly sinful, vile, and loathsome in my own sight, what must I be in the eyes of an holy God? Sure I am. The language of Job well becomes me and fitly expresses my experience. Behold, I am vile. I abhor myself. I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. The mind thus deeply affected with the experience it has of the body of inward corruption and inwardly oppressed by the devil through his temptations and fiery assaults is in a heaviness for a season, and there is a necessity for it. By this means the believer learns to know himself. He feels his great need of Christ. Those words from the mouth of his dear Lord serve to sustain him. My grace is sufficient for thee. The temptations and assaults of Satan with which the believer has been exercised through the divine influence of the Holy Ghost have done him good. They have produced such frames and feelings as will ever serve to humble him and keep him low in his own eyes. His mind is emptied of all high thoughts concerning himself. 
His frame of heart is meek and lowly. He views himself to be the least of saints and the chief of sinners. The publican's prayer suits his feelings as well as his case, and he offers it up with the energy of the Spirit. God be merciful unto me, a sinner. Through the propitiatory sacrifice of the co-equal Son, in a valley of humiliation he prizes Christ's refreshings. When under darkness and in soul distress, without spiritual consolations, such a scripture as this is prized beyond the gold of Ophir. For a small moment I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. He experiences that the flesh lusts against the spirit. He feels the effects of it, which leads him to see that his salvation is all of grace, and that he needs Jesus every moment and for everything. The experience which he has of himself with the rage and malice of Satan against him only increases his importunity at the throne. He is poor and needy, and as such he betakes himself to the Lord and finds a promise which exactly suits his case frame and feelings. Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, I will help thee. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I will open rivers in high places, and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. The fulfillment of which promise to the believer in a time of spiritual need renders the grace and good contained in it most inestimably precious. He gives a proof of God's being his God, shows how his eye is on his child. It's an expression of his mercy and draws out the faith and hope of the believer in the fresh act and exercise, so that he says, Truly my soul waits for the Lord, from him cometh my salvation. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, ye people, pour out your hearts before him, God is a refuge for us, Selah. Thus, in the course of the believer's experience, a way is open for his knowing God more fully, as his covenant God, and for trusting in him under that character. Looking on the promises and declarations of grace in Christ Jesus as so many parts of the covenant, he finds that, as there is a time for the execution of all God's purposes, so there is for the fulfillment of all his exceeding great and precious promises, and that some of them would remain unknown to him if he were not brought into soul distress. Moreover, in some circumstances he prizes spiritual strength more than divine consolations, and he sees ground for thankfulness for this promise at all times. Let his frames and feelings be ever so uncomfortable. He gives power to the faint and to them that have no might he increases strength. From his own experience he can give God the honor of saying concerning him, He is faithful that promised and may add, He will not leave me nor forsake me. I have his word for it. To live thus by faith on God, as he has been pleased to reveal himself in his word, and to hold communion with him by mixing faith therewith, is the glory of our most holy profession. It is doing God the utmost honor and giving him the highest glory we can possibly render him on this side of heaven. O my soul, learn thou to improve this subject daily. Seek to put honor on his word by steadfast faith continually. O blessed God and Father who keepeth covenant forever, blessed be your holy name, you are ever mindful of it. 
O look upon the glorious mediator of it, and upon me in him. And for his sake bestow on me thy Holy Spirit as the spirit of promise to put life into it, and send him to explain and apply thy promises as my various case may require. I thank thee for appointing Christ to be the captain of salvation, and for calling me to fight under his banner against sin, the world, and the devil. You have provided me with armor of proof. Lord, clothe me with it. Teach me the proper use of every part, and let me go forward, fighting the good fight of faith, laying hold of eternal life. I ask it for the honor of your grace, and would ascribe all praise to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, to whom is co-equal and co-eternal in the unity of one undivided Godhead, be everlasting glory, blessing, and worship. Amen. In the next chapter of Samuel Pierce's book, chapter 6, we will discuss the manner in which the Holy Ghost carries on his own blessed work and office in the soul, though it is imperceptible to the believer who is the subject of it, and how it is open to him in subsequent and matured experience.